Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. So Revelation chapter 15, let's read. It's the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. And let's see what it has to say to us this morning. Only eight verses, but quite a bit packed here in these little eight verses. So Revelation chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. After these things, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word this morning. And as always, Lord, may you speak to us, may you minister to our hearts the things that we need to hear and that we need to understand. Lord, pour out your spirit as your word is the sword of the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Revelation, of course, has only 22 chapters. We're, we're getting there. And we are in the middle of the time of the tribulation, and we've really just crossed that midpoint, that trigger time when the Antichrist has gone into the temple, the rebuilt temple, which is not yet built, but preparations are being made for it to be built. Everything is pretty much in order for that to happen. So God has moved in his people to prepare them to build the temple. And a few weeks ago, I shared some slides with you from the Temple Institute, the Temple Mount. Uh, there's two separate organizations who are working there independently, but also in a sense, uh, it seems that the Holy Spirit is causing them to collaborate. It's, it's really interesting to go there and read what God has been doing um, as the, the, t the preparations to build the third temple really are, are just ready to go. We're just waiting on the timing of God for it to happen. But during the time of the tribulation, the temple will uh, be rebuilt. And then we know in the midpoint of the tribulation, that's when the Antichrist himself goes into the most holy place. And he will declare himself to be God and declare that he must be worshipped as God. 
And so a few weeks ago, in the end of chapter 12, leading into chapter 13, we looked at this. We looked at sort of the rise of the Antichrist and the lengths that he goes to to raise himself up against God and to be declared as God. And the whole world by that point in time will have been so enamored with him, they will be in too deep and far too committed. And so it will be too late except for those who believe in the name of Jesus during the time of the tribulation. And so we're going to see some of that here this morning. We've also been going through in the first half of the tribulation. Uh, Mitch, if you can bring up those slides, we'll just do this for a review briefly here. Thank you. So we've been in this sort of little red box here, Revelation chapters 6 through 18. Um, The first half of the tribulation, beginning in chapter 6, has been a breaking of the seals from the scroll that was given to the Lamb. And then he moved from that into, if you'll go to that next slide, uh, after the first six seals, there was the seventh seal, there was a little interlude, and then there was the beginning of the blowing of the trumpets. The seventh seal triggered the first trumpet, and then there was the blowing of the trumpets, and then we saw that seventh trumpet blown. And we've been, for the last few weeks, sort of on that red line on our way up to the bowls uh, of God's wrath. And that's where we are, chapter 16. We're sort of teetering on the precipice of that beginning to happen. But chapter 15, as we're looking at it here this morning, is sort of getting everything in order and preparing for chapter 16 to happen. And if you look there in your open Bible, you'll see in chapter 16, all six, uh, all seven bowls of God's wrath will be poured out. And that's where we'll be next week. Uh, you can take that down, thank you. So today, we are in chapter 15, looking at the preparations, the prelude to the bowl judgments. Some have viewed this chapter as a celestial interlude, before the judgments of God break loose in the next chapter and what has been anticipated in the cup of the wine of the wrath of God from chapter 14 and then the harvest and the vintage where the reapers come and they begin to reap the earth is now about to happen. But before it does, we are again reminded in this chapter that God is still in control. He is still on his throne And heaven still overrules the events of the earth. Nothing happens without God being aware that it's happening then and now. So in chapter 15, verse 1, as we've just read this morning, let's begin there. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. So things are lining up, they're queuing up, they're getting ready to go. For in them, the wrath of God is complete. Not in the angels, but in the bowls that they're gonna be given in just a moment. And so as John now sees this sign in heaven, uh, he's not telling us exactly what the sign is, but he does see the angels uh, getting lined up and they have the seven last plagues. And we are told that in them, the wrath of God is complete. And in each of the previous judgments, in the seals, as well as the trumpets, uh, there was a pause between the sixth and the seventh. But in the bold judgments, it says the wrath of God is complete. That word complete is implying to us 
that now it's just going to happen. It's just going to rain. And all of the things that we have seen prior to now in terms of the pouring out of the wrath of God on the sinful and unbelieving world is now going to happen really in such a way that it's, you think it was bad before. You may think it couldn't have gotten any worse, but when we get to chapter 16, we'll realize that it gets much, much worse. And we also see that here, it's mentioned twice in this passage, this phrase connected together, great and marvelous. That's the only time in the whole Bible that this phrase is mentioned together, great and marvelous, great and mighty. Uh, the words great and marvelous are mega and amazing and extraordinary. So for John, at this point in time, for all that he has seen and all that has been revealed to him, for him to say that, that this sign is you know, deserve, deserving of this extra mention, uh, to call it out and to say that this is great and marvelous, this is something to his eyes. He realizes something big is about to happen. There's an idea contained in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 26 that sort of prepares us for this moment. And I'll read it to you. It's found in Leviticus 26, 21. And this is the Lord speaking. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. And so here, in the pouring out of the bowls of the wrath of God, which is about to happen, we see that very thing coming to pass. And in verse 2, we see, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of gold. Once again, we see who? the tribulation saints. And in this case, I believe, as we looked at in the past couple of weeks, the 144,000 witnesses, remember they were men, they were people that were sealed from among the 12 different tribes, 12,000 from each of the 12 different tribes. And remember their time of ministering on the earth was up. And so now we see, it says, those who have the victory over the beast. Now remember, the beast made quite a stand, didn't he, through chapters 12, 13, and 14. And remember in chapter 13, he declared that no one would be able to buy or sell unless they took his mark on their right hand or in their foreheads. And he demanded to be worshipped. And all of this Old Testament imagery is being drawn forward, such as King Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament when he built a statue and demanded that he be worshipped. Or maybe even in the book of Esther where a similar kind of thing happened, where the image of the king was demanded to be worshipped. And yet in both of those situations, for those who chose to stand for God and to say, I will not bow my knee to a foreign God, to an image made with hands. For those who chose to obey God, they did suffer consequence for that. And we see here now that these people, as we've been talking about, these who would believe through the time of the tribulation, that their faith cost them something. And you see, today in our world, when we say, I believe in Jesus, so often it's from the point of view of, I just want my sins forgiven and I want to go to heaven and I don't want to go to hell. 
And that's okay. I'm glad that, you, that we all feel that way, that we want that. But I hope that there's a genuine conviction upon our hearts that draws us to the Lord and that we want it because it's the right thing, that we want it because we understand that He is holy and He is righteous and we are not. In this time, in this environment, it will be very, very clear that if you say, I believe in Jesus, it will cost you dearly. It will cost you your life. And I wonder sometimes in today's world of what I would term easy believism, how many of us truly do believe in Jesus? You know, and I've often tried to think of it like this, uh, that you might think I'm a little crazy, but when you read the book of Revelation, it's not so far-fetched because we know that those who believe in Christ will be put to death if they won't confess the beast. What would it be like if a terrorist, let's just say a government agent, broke into your house and said, you know, to, to anyone, to the, the father, the mother, or whomever, and said, unless you believe. And they put a gun to the head or the knife to the throat of someone in your home and said, unless you believe in our Messiah, in our beast, that the life of this one will be taken right before your eyes. And that's not really too far-fetched from what will happen during the time of the tribulation. I'm not saying that exact thing will happen, but it will be very clear that if you choose Jesus and you will not follow Satan and his beast and his false prophet, you will be making a choice for physical death but spiritual life. And that same clarity that comes to us in the book of Revelation should be clear to us today prior to the time of the tribulation. So these tribulation saints and probably most likely these 144,000, listen how it, de- how it describes them. Those who have victory over the beast. You see, today we're just thinking about victory over sin. In that day, it's not just sin, but it's over the beast, it's over Satan himself, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. Why? Because they will be forced to take, uh, to worship his image, to take his mark, and to bow down to the number of his name. And presumably, this mark that they're going to have to take will in some way include his number, 666. And again, as we mentioned when we studied that, there, people have tried for ages to sort of sort that out and figure out what it means. And there's no one who has the answer to that except God in the day that it happens. But they're saying that this is what they will have had to have survived to get to that point of faith in that day during the time of the tribulation. Now, let me remind us something from Revelation chapter 12. You can turn back there if you like. In verse 11, it reads as follows. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. And then a little later in verse 17 of chapter 12. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So in that day, Satan will have an absolute rage against those who believe 
in Jesus. You may think it's bad today. It is nothing, nothing compared to what they will experience. So you see a little persecution, a little bit of people making fun of you or me because we believe in God. We have this, quote, Elizabethan approach to religion and faith or to purity in a world that is sex-crazed and wants to brainwash our kids uh, while they are in elementary school into believing certain things about sexual practices, things that should never be discussed with kids. And here we are today uh, where our, our faith is made fun of. And people who have faith in Jesus, you see, they're being persecuted in certain ways. We've, we've certainly heard over the last number of years people who are business owners who took a stand and said, I, I won't participate or I won't do something in honor of something that's an abomination to God. And they've been put out of business and sued and, and taken down to, to nothing, have everything stripped from them, which is not unlike what would have happened in the first century when people who were Jews who began to believe in God and uh, their standing in the community was removed and everything they had was taken from them. And we have to realize, we have to deal with the reality of what does our faith cost us? If our faith has no cost, is it real? Is a faith that can't be tested real? And our faith will be tested. And perhaps yours has been. But don't be surprised if the testing of our faith increases. Remember, Peter talked about this in his letter, where he said that so often we tend to think there are others in the world who, uh, meaning other believers, who aren't going through the same things we're going through. And we tend to always think that our thing is worse and our trial is so much more intense. And Peter reminds us in his epistle saying, listen, you have other brothers and sisters going through similar things or even greater because of the faith. And I'm not talking about just daily struggles with illness and that kind of thing. I'm talking about issues of faith. And so these people were standing on this glassy sea with sort of a mixture. Uh, It says this time, uh, so back in chapter four and five, we saw this glassy sea before the throne of God. But now we see a glassy sea that has a little bit of fire mixed in. And people have surmise that what this is talking about is that now that these, these bowls, the finality of the wrath of God is being given to them, that this is sort of being reflected in this glassy sea. And so finally, all of these things that the saints had called out for, the tribulation saints saying, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our death and before you right the wrongs that were done to us, that it's about to happen now when we get to chapter 16. There was one commentator who said something that just pierced me, and I think it will you as well, and I want to read it to you, because it speaks to the fact that on that day, when these people, when these tribulation saints are there in the presence of God, and they're about to watch what God is going to do as he pours out the finality of his wrath, that we need to understand something about our frame of mind and our thoughts and how we think, because so many of our thoughts are self-centric, aren't they? Listen to this as this person wrote these thoughts about all of that. He said, perhaps the most pervasive human defect 
is our stubborn insistence that our perceptions and illusions should be taken for objective reality. Let me read that again. Perhaps the most pervasive human defect is our stubborn insistence that our perceptions and illusions should be taken for objective reality. Isn't that exactly what's happening today? As people rise up against God, I believe whatever gender I am, that I'm the other gender because I declared it to be so. We live in a world where you can say things like that and people are like, oh, okay, that's good. That's cool, good, great. Where's the t-shirt? Can I get one? This is the world we live in. And I'm not making fun of people. I'm saying, this is not reality, folks. Just because someone declares themselves to be something else, it doesn't make it so. I can't park my car in an airplane hangar and get an F-14 out of it because I believe it. We understand that's absurdity, right? God will make all of this crystal clear as he pours out his wrath. And here's what happens as these saints in verse 3 are standing there on the glassy sea. Verse 3, read it with me. They sing the song of Moses. By the way, that song we just sang is called the song of Moses. It comes out of Exodus 15. We're going to read that in a minute. They sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, great and marvelous, there's that phrase again, are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. So this song that they're singing, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of a lamb, of the Lamb, and it would sing, seem that they're singing either two songs together or one song with different Uh, stanzas or verses, and we're going to look at these two different scriptures that I believe contain the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. But it says this song gives praise to, listen, God's works, great and marvelous are your works. God's ways, just and true, are your ways. God's worthiness, who shall not fear you, O Lord God, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. And God's worship, all nations shall come and worship before you. Now notice that these martyrs who are there before the throne of God, they're only focused on one thing. They're only focused on God. They are not there focusing on their own costly victory. They're not saying to God, God, you know, you realize what it cost me. It cost my life. They chopped off my head. They killed my family because I said I believe. They're not focusing on that. What are they focusing on? They're focusing on the throne of God. They're focusing on the goodness of God. How can someone who paid the ultimate price for believing in Jesus stand before God and said, great and righteous and holy and just are you, O Lord, in the midst of knowing that what it cost them to be standing in that very spot was their life. And many of them were probably brutally bludgeoned and horrible things done to them that are not worthy of mentioning. These martyrs stood before God. And if you want to turn there, you don't have to. I'm going to read it to you. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. This is what everyone says and believes in your Bible probably has a heading in it says the song of Moses. The song of Moses came after what? 
after the children of Israel were delivered through the Red Sea, right? After they were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh and they came out of Egypt. And remember the scene was, there was the 10 plagues and there was this epic battle between Moses and Pharaoh, really between Pharaoh and God, as the 10 plagues fell upon Egypt. And in the beginning, it was Pharaoh's magicians sort of mimicking and imitating and counterfeiting the work of God. But ultimately, they couldn't stand up to the work of God. Their, work came, their, their power came from Satan, but Satan is no match for, for God. And so finally, they were delivered. Remember, after the night of the, the Passover, where the blood was painted on the doorposts and the lentils of the house. And they were delivered after all the firstborn of Egypt were in mourning because their firstborn had died. And they traveled out to the Red Sea, headed up toward the promised land from Egypt. And as they got to the mountain, they were penned in and hemmed between the mountain, the armies of Pharaoh coming and the Red Sea, and they had nowhere to go. And so they looked up. And it's a real true story, but it's a picture for you and me. When you are hemmed in and penned and there is nowhere to go, what do you do? You look up. You cry out to God. And so that's what they did. And here's the song now. They've been delivered through the sea. Remember, God delivered them. He put the pillar of fire. The army couldn't come. And the the nation of Israel was allowed to go. Remember, animals, carts, children. They were not moving, you know, 80 miles an hour through the Red Sea. They were walking at a snail's pace. And God provided for them to get through the Red Sea on dry ground. And as they finished and they got to the other side and then God removed the pillar and they went in, what happened? The sea closed up on them and that was God's judgment, was it not? On the nation, on Pharaoh's people. And here's the song that God gave them that they wrote in Exodus 15. And so this is the song we're told, putting it back in our context that the tribulation saints and the 144,000 and whoever else is present, they are singing this song to God. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath that consumed them like stubble. And the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew uh, with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Now remember the children of Israel sang that song after God had delivered them, right? Now God has delivered these tribulation saints from the hand of the beast, from his mark and his influence and all of that that we just read. But they're also singing the song before God goes out in battle to judge them. And that battle is going to be the battle of Armageddon. As God pours out his wrath, in the pouring out of his wrath, he's then going to follow it out with the battle. So they're praising him. They've learned to praise him before the storm, before the battle. Yes, they had a storm. And God delivered them through it. But God is now going to do a great and awesome, a marvelous, an amazing and a mighty thing. But in keeping with the idea that God delivered them through the waters from Pharaoh's hand, remember with me, back in chapter 12, if you want to turn there, Revelation 12, it says, beginning in verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Remember the beast was breathing out wrath and threats against the nation of Israel into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Remember that? Well, Satan went after them, how? With a flood of waters that came out of his mouth. And here they are in heaven singing. What? God, you delivered us through the sea from the hand of our oppressor. Not only did God do it in the Old Testament with Moses, but he did it here as Satan himself went after them with a vengeance. Isn't that amazing that God would do such a thing? And the song of the Lamb turned back to Revelation 5. So they've sung the song of Moses or they're singing it before the throne of God. And in Revelation 5, we find the song to the Lamb. So listen to this praise. Listen to the, the, the lyrics and if nothing else, this ought to impress upon our hearts and minds with today's modern worship scene that we live in. Is our worship about God 
Or is our worship about ourselves? Because so much of the modern worship, yes, maybe it's focusing on what you've done for me. But let's make sure that our worship doesn't get too much involved with me because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. The song of the Lamb in Revelation 5, beginning in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And then in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then in verse 13, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. I can't wait to hear that song in heaven being sung between the song of Moses and the song of the lamb, that they are worshiping God on the the main floor of heaven before the throne of God, before God pours out his wrath and his judgment on the earth. And verse four of Revelation chapter 15, who shall not fear you? This is a rhetorical question, isn't it? Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy for all nations shall come and worship before you for your judgments have been manifested. In other words, you talk about not being able to resist the worship of God any longer. People will be forced to worship and doesn't this help us understand. See, the words there, for, are used three times. And the word for and the word because are really the same word. For or because you are holy. This is why people will be worshiping God, because he's holy. For or because all nations shall come and worship before you. And then finally, for or because your judgments have been manifested. In other words, your righteous acts have been revealed, God. And let me remind us out of Philippians chapter two, these words written by the the apostle Paul. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. That verse will be fulfilled in this day. In their song, the tribulation saints praise God's works as well as his ways. The earth dwellers certainly would not praise God for his works and they would never understand his ways. God's works are great and marvelous and his ways are just and true. There is no complaint here about the way God permitted these people to suffer. It would save us a great deal of sorrow if we would acknowledge God's sovereignty in this same way today over our lives. These things, verse 5, after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So you realize the heavenly copy of the temple and the tabernacle, these were all just a shadow of what's in heaven. There's a heavenly copy of these things and the one in heaven is perfect. And so now John is being permitted to see 
into the temple, as it says, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. This is a reference to the most holy place. This is a place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where the scrolls, or rather the the stones or the tablets of the law of God was kept and the bowl of manna and the rod of Aaron. And as uh, John is able to see into these things, it says, out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Back in chapter one, We saw a picture of Jesus in a very similar way, didn't we? That Jesus was clothed in a white garment and he had a golden band about his chest. And remember, Jesus is called our great high priest. And the the garment that he was wearing was the garment of a priest as he would go in on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, to minister in the presence of the Lord. And here these angels now are wearing the same garments. They're not Jesus, but clearly they've been in the presence of God. They've been into the most holy place. And so they had, in keeping with the law of God, to wear that same kind of garment to go into his presence. And so now they are coming out carrying these seven plagues, these seven bowls. And as they come out with their their garments on, it says in verse seven, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. You know, we think of bowls, you might think of in your your cupboard, a soup bowl. In the presence of God, it was really more like a saucer or a platter. And these things were used before God to, uh, to minister in various ways. One of the ways was to carry the ashes, the hot coals, from one altar to another and that kind of a thing. So they weren't really bowls. They were more like saucers or platters, but they were turned up a little bit. So they, they called them bowls. And so these, uh, the one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels, the seven golden bowls. So one is sort of acting as the one who's distributing. He's going in and handing to them the seven bowls of the wrath of God as they are about to be distributed to the earth. And then in verse eight, The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. The smoke that's filling the temple is the Shekinah glory. This is the glory of God that we see manifested so often in the Old Testament, when Moses would go in to minister before the presence of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 19, we find this same scenario taking place, Exodus nineteen seventeen, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And then a little later in Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So in this moment, the Lord himself with his glory, the smoke from the glory of God has filled the temple. 
And these seven plagues are being distributed. And we read in chapter 16 now, if we had time, we'd go into that. But you can see there as you look down with your eyes, the first bowl, the second bowl, they are about to be poured out on the earth. And here's something we need to realize and understand about the wrath of God. God has been patient since the day he spoke the world into existence and since the day he created Adam and Eve and more importantly, since the day that they sinned. And ultimately, since the day that each one of us were born and brought into the earth and we were conceived in sin, we are told in the Old Testament, aren't we? In the the Psalms, they bear that out for us. And you see, God has been patient with mankind for so many years and given us as human humanity so many opportunities to believe in him, to hear his gospel, to respond to his truth. Yes, we've been given many, many, many opportunities to make things right, to believe in God, to humble ourselves before him, to begin to follow him, to have him transform us from the inside out because the spirit of God has come into the lives of those who have believed him by faith, to those who have heard his word and believed. You see, God will not share his glory with another. There's only one God and it's him. And we cannot and we will not worship someone else. And if we do, if we choose to mix God with someone else, God will consider that as being a heathen. He won't accept it. There's only one true God and there's only one way to worship him. And it's all contained here in this book. And as we've been shown today and as we looked at the song of Moses and the song of the lamb, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we're going through. It's not about what's happening in our world. The world needs Jesus. We need Jesus. Every person needs Jesus. And Jesus is the only answer. Because on that great day, which we're leading up to, when when the whole world will stand before the great white throne of God, they'll be judged based on what? What have you done with Jesus? Have you responded to the gospel? They'll be judged on, have you blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Meaning, have you turned your back on the work of the Spirit as he's been working and wooing and communicating to you the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, the word of God? And you know, if you've ever heard that little voice in the back of your head, no, you're not crazy. It is the Holy Spirit speaking to you, saying, no, come to me, return to me. Stop doing this. Run, flee from that. That's the Holy Spirit. And so today, while it's still called today, before, as in this case, the wrath of God's about to be poured on the the world, we're not there yet, but today we still have an opportunity, don't we? to believe before we take our last breath, before something happens. Yes, it would be tragic. But once you breathe your last, there's no more opportunity. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is kind. He does not want to do this, but he must do it because of his holiness, his righteousness, his truth. He must judge And you can either be judged by the blood of Christ on the cross or you can be judged like this. If this is the way you want to be judged, then so be it. But for me and for my house 
And I hope and pray for all of you. I pray that you would believe in the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Lord, as we just thank you for that opportunity that we're reminded of here today. If there's any who need to believe and to trust in you now, then we pray that they would do so. They would just reach out to you in faith and say, Jesus, I believe in you, I trust in you. And Lord, that this day, this moment would be for them their salvation. And that you would come in and meet them, bring your spirit into their lives, Lord. Bring your cleansing and your forgiveness. Free their minds, cleanse their hearts. And Lord, you said you would give us a new heart. You would give us a new life. And that we can now walk in the freedom and the fullness of all that you have prepared for us. We can walk and live as children of God and not children of Satan. God, let today be the opportunity that some have needed and wanted for so long. And so, Lord, today for us, if we need to, as your children, maybe just to clean up a little bit, then may we do so right now as we worship you. We love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.